I learned quickly. Well, if you've been away from college for a while, perhaps your walk from the chapel to dinner this evening brought back memories. <laughs> memories of passionate convictions and diverse perspectives respectfully shared that are characteristic of a university's life. And this is a place where those traditions continue to be valued. I'm Father Charlie Gordon of the Garaventa Center. And on behalf of the Red Mass Committee, uh, one more welcome to you, to this uh, Red Mass uh, banquet and, and talk this evening. I can't, obviously, acknowledge all the uh, esteemed people who are gathered here this evening, but I, I do want to say that we are especially graced to have Archbishop Sample with us and, and Bishop Peter Smith. So thank you. Thank you for Um, and and you, that was our president who was saying grace at, at the beginning, uh, Father Mark L. Porman. Our speaker this evening, Father Paul Scalia, is a priest of the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia. And he uh, attended the Jesuit College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, and went on to study theology at the Gregorian University and the University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome. Uh, since his ordination in 1996, he served in a number of parishes and currently serves his diocese as Episcopal Vicar for Clergy. His first book, That Nothing May Be Lost, Reflections on Catholic Doctrine and Devotion, was published by Ignatius Press in 2017, uh, included as an appendix to Father Scalia's well-received book is his funeral homily for his father, Justice Antonin Scalia. I think it's fair to say that it was this exemplary, deeply moving homily that first brought Father Scalia to national attention. Uh, his talk this evening is entitled, In Fairness to the Pharisees, the Law, Laws, and Lawlessness. Please join me in welcoming our 2018 Red Mass speaker, Father Paul Scalia. Thank you, Father. Uh, it's very good to be here, and I'm grateful for the invitation. Father said, the title of my remarks this evening is In Fairness to the Pharisees, the Law, Laws, and Lawlessness. Now first, uh, a couple words about that, that part about the Pharisees. Uh, it might be misleading. It could be taken to, uh, to express a sympathy for those of you in the legal profession. Referring to you, the intended audience, as, as Pharisees. And, and so just another jab, right, at lawyers. Or I suppose it could also be taken to mean that I, the speaker, am siding with the Pharisees. Uh, so either way, I'm, I'm either in, insulting you or indicting myself. It's not flattering either way. 
But let me assure you, I don't mean uh, either of those. What I'd like to do instead is to consider how the Pharisees have much to teach us about law by positive example and negative. There are few things clearer in the Gospels than the antagonism between our Lord and the Pharisees. They judge him. They try to trap him with their questions. They even accuse him of being possessed by a demon. They ultimately help to convict him uh, based on false evidence. Now, in fairness to the Pharisees, our Lord does not shy away from the controversy. In fact, he kind of initiates it. Uh, his, his first sermon, from the start, he says, I tell you, speaking to the rabble, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and, the, and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now imagine them hearing that. So at any rate, the Pharisees seem to be the ultimate villains in the gospel story. When they show up on the scene, when you're at Sunday Mass and you hear the Pharisees mentioned, perhaps the bad guy music immediately comes into your mind, the imperial march or something like that. So for us, the word Pharisee is loaded with meaning and none of it good. But actually, they're not the ultimate villains. If any group in Israel at that time deserved that designation, it was not the Pharisees. It was actually their enemies, the Sadducees. The Pharisees are more familiar to us because they occupy so much of the narrative. The Sadducees are less well-known simply because they're not mentioned as often. St. Matthew in 28 chapters only mentions them seven times. Mark and Luke mention him, mention the Sadducees just once a piece. And John doesn't mention them at all. But in many ways, they were the more influential and more important group in ancient Israel. Now, theologically, the Sadducees were minimalists. They did not believe in the immortality of the soul or the resurrection of the body or angels, which leads one to wonder why you would believe in anything if you're not believing in those things. And of course, a truncated view of, of a truncated theological view such as that leads inevitably to a worldly way of thinking. The Sadducees were, not surprisingly, the power brokers for the nation of Israel. They ran the temple and they, no, they negotiated things with the Romans. They were willing to cut corners on matters of faith in order to maintain their temporal power in Israel. So they at once claimed the Jewish mantle and sort of compromised it to, to keep their power. And they probably saw it as a service to others for the kingdom of Israel because of their realpolitik. Israel's limited autonomy endured, the temple was secure, and religious practices continued. The problem was, the Sadducees saw Israel as just a worldly reality, which explains why our Lord so rarely engages them. His ministry did not concern them at all, 
until and unless it touched on things political. He simply did not have time for them. They were so unconcerned about what he came to proclaim that he almost never spoke to them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, did take the faith of Israel seriously. They had set themselves up precisely in opposition to the worldliness of the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed, thanks be to God, to in the immorality of the, the immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the body, and angels. The Pharisees desired righteousness and fidelity to the law of God. They wanted to maintain the covenant with the God of Israel. They awaited the redemption of Israel. And in all of this, they were, in many ways, the natural audience for our Lord. In contrast to the Sadducees, the Pharisees were scrupulous in observing the law of Moses. And not only the law of Moses, but all the the hundreds of little laws that had grown up sort of as a guard around the law of Moses. They can and should be faulted for legalism, of course. But with the Pharisees, there's an important principle in play that we should not miss, which is this. That unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees were convinced that there is a proper way of living before God. There is a law of life, the law. There was a way to live in righteousness with God. They wanted to know that, and they wanted to live it. They wanted to fashion their lives, not according to what pleases the Romans, but according to the Lord's truth to his law. Ironically, this very good quality becomes distorted, and so becomes precisely the point of controversy between the Pharisees and Jesus. Not devotion to the law of Moses as such, but their short, short-sighted adherence that made the law an end in itself rather than the means to the end. They would not go against the law, but neither would the Pharisees go beyond it. Their devotion to the law was good, as our Lord confirmed when he said that he had come not to abolish the, but to fulfill the law, but they had become too focused on it and could not see beyond it. They could not see the person who was before them as the fulfillment of the law. And so our Lord directs many of his teachings and parables precisely against the Pharisees. The parable of the prodigal son, which is really the parable of the rotten older brother. (laughs) Our Lord tells that parable precisely because the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling that he received sinners and ate with them. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard, which none of us like, right? It's when the ones who arrive late get the same pay as the ones who, who work the whole day. Uh, our Lord gives that parable again, directed at the Pharisees. And if that's not enough, in Matthew chapter 23, he, present, he pronounces seven woes, seven prophetic woes against the Pharisees. So, in fairness to the Pharisees, 
they got a lot of things right. Not just the importance of legal, legal observance, but even more, that there is a way to live, a law of life that is to be sought and to be embraced. Indeed, it is precisely because they are devoted to righteousness that our Lord is so demanding of them. Nevertheless, they got a lot of things wrong. Tragically, their refusal to go beyond the law of Moses, which was, in effect, a distortion of their virtuous devotion to the law, that refusal was their undoing. So what does all of this have to do with our time here this evening? Uh, It is not to call with a lot of you Pharisees. It, It comes down to these three things that we learn from the Pharisees. First, the law is good. Second, the law is not all there is. And third, that both these truths depend on the lawgiver. So first, law is good. That is, human positive law is a good. It is not for nothing that the Catholic Church has produced so many lawyers and canonized a fair fair number of them. St. Thomas More, of course, is the most famous, but there's also Thomas Beckett, Charles Borromeo, Francis de Sales, Alphonsus Liguri, and my personal favorite name, Theophilus the Lawyer. <laughs> we count many lawyers among the canonized saints, not just Thomas More, but many others. And the church has produced so many saintly lawyers because the church views laws as good, not just the divine and the natural law, but also positive laws in accord with them. The church's view of man-made laws is not that of the modernists. She has never spoken of the law as a necessary evil, as a mere restraint on atomized individuals to keep them from harming each other. She does not see laws as an unfortunate but necessary restriction on human freedom. Rather, human law is the way of both expressing and ordering the good of human society, the common good. Law serves the common good by ordering things rightly, or at least as rightly as we can figure them out. And as such, it has the capacity to teach and even to build up virtue. And essential in all of this is the church's conviction is that there is the law beyond laws. There is that law from which all other laws derive their authority. It is the law that is the truth of the human person, of who we are, and how we ought to live in order to be truly fulfilled or happy. The Old Testament's wisdom literature speaks of this. Paul's letter to the Roman says it is written on our hearts, and the philosophical tradition calls it, of course, the natural law. Human laws seek to give an expression of that truth in a particular time, in a particular place. And it is in this that laws and the rule of law in general provide a basic service. They not only order things rightly, they also foster the sense 
that there is, in fact, a normative way of acting, of being human. There's no getting around the pedagogical power and aspect of the law. We pass and enforce laws precisely because we think that some things are good and others are bad, that some things build up human community and others damage it. In that way, laws instill in people the sense that there is a norm, a proper way of living, an authentic way of being human and of being in relation with others, of being in community. This is the positive example of the Pharisees. They had that sense that there is a way to live, speak, and act in accordance with our created nature, in accordance with revelation. They possess the conviction that there is an objective truth about how to live an authentic human life. And so we have here the goodness of the law, not just the law of Moses, not just the natural moral law, the disciplines of the church, and so on, but also laws of the state, the laws that so many of you are entrusted with, 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 uh, with enforcing or with, with, with administering. These laws give expression not only to how one should behave, but even more importantly, to the fact that there is a right way to behave, to conduct oneself as a human person. And this is to speak of the goodness of legal work as well. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know when I say that the legal profession is not typically associated with faith, devotion, or goodness. None of the lawyer jokes I know communicate that. And the Gospels don't help, by the way, uh, when they, when at least in one translation, they tell us about the lawyer or the scholar of the law who came to put our Lord to the test. Uh, my father, by the way, once told me that uh, those references to lawyers and scholars of the law in the Gospel really means theologians. <laughs> He was wrong. (laughs) The truth remains about the nobility of the legal profession and the rule of law properly understood. Traditionally, uh, we, we refer to ministers of the law or administering the law. From the Latin minister, a, a servant, one, one who provides a service for others. Uh, and providing a service not just for others, but providing a service on the behalf of someone greater. And that's the proper way to understand the noble uh, legal profession. And an awareness of this should inform your legal work. Uh, Your attention and devotion to the rule of law not only helps order society, but also, by so doing, bears witness to something more. Which brings us to the second thing we learn from the Pharisees. That's something more. Law is not all there is. Laws do not exist for their own sake. They are here to govern us towards the good and to instill in us a sense that there is a good. 
the great tragedy of the Pharisees was not their devotion to laws. It was the distortion of that devotion. Every vice is just a virtue twisted out of shape. It's just the distortion of a virtue, either by excess or by defect. The Pharisees erred by excess, by allowing their reverence for the law to become disproportionate. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The law for them had become not a means to an end, a way of coming to God, but in effect, a God itself. The end, and therefore, a form of idolatry which is why our Lord is so strong against them. They became so attentive to the law that they forgot the persons the law should serve. So our Lord very often provided the corrective. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, he says. And that's at the heart of many of our Lord's condemnations and rebukes of the Pharisees. They got so caught up in the laws that they did not recognize the persons the laws were meant to serve, and the lawgiver from whom they came. They did not recognize the fulfillment of the law standing in their midst. And this obviously serves as a warning to those in the legal profession, a profession important, noble, and of great service. But it is neither the only thing nor even the most important thing And there is a danger, isn't there, of allowing legal work to overshadow persons, uh, to overshadow families, friends, perhaps your your very selves, and a healthy way of living. This is the common danger that will become all-consuming. And it can, that it comes to burden you in such a way that you neglect the time that you should that should be given to others, that the the laws are meant to assist others, and of course, most importantly, can come to come in between you and your devotion to the Lord. This is the danger, the distortion of a virtue. In this regard, allow me to, to single out one important practice, one already already required of you. Observe the Sabbath. It's fascinating how many of our Lord's confrontations with the Pharisees have to do not just with the Sabbath, but with persons being helped on the Sabbath. Uh, The man with the withered hand whom he heals, or or the woman, as he describes it, bound by Satan for 18 years, whom he restores to health, whom he frees from from that binding. The Sabbath is given to us precisely for freedom, for God, and for others. Uh, to keep us from the slavery to work. And in so doing, the Sabbath puts whatever occupation, and in this case, the law, in its proper place. Not as a master, but as a servant. Those who know the lawgiver know that the law is not all there is, which is why people of faith are so important for a free society. 
Only those who know that there is an ultimate law and lawgiver will be able to situate authority in its proper place. Hence the good American sense that faith is a foil to legal authoritarianism. That is, that the government derives its authority from God. Not that the government is anointed by God, but that its ministers have been, in God's providence, conceded this authority and that they will have to answer to him. And so the American instinct to express the sense of the lawgiver, of the law himself, we erect displays of Ten Commandments in front of capitals and on courthouse walls. We have chaplain pray for the Congress. And before all oral arguments the Supreme Court, we pray, God save this honorable court. And as empty as these gestures might seem to some, they at least proceed originally from the conviction that beyond the laws that, that we administer here is the lawgiver himself. Uh, who has allowed us to be ministers and to whom we will have to answer. And if we forget the lawgiver, if we forget the law beyond laws, uh, two things happen. First, law becomes all-encompassing because nothing any longer restrains it. There's an interesting correlation, I think, uh, in the secularization of our culture and its increasing litigiousness. Uh, More interesting would be to consider not just the correlation, but perhaps the causality. And second, when the rule of law disappears, there becomes no truth. uh, When when the lawgiver disappears, when when he recedes from, from the public mind, from the public square, there's no longer a truth to appeal to about the human person. And there being no appeal to an ultimate norm or principle, what happens? Lawmaking becomes just a matter of muscle, a matter of who has the power to get laws passed and enforce. There being no truth to appeal to about what it means to be human or to live in community, then everything becomes just a legal scrum. And those who respect the rule of law uh, over the law of the jungle are actually at a disadvantage. Which brings me to my last point. Uh, Lawlessness. This reverence for the laws, for the rule of law, and for the lawgiver himself is always important, but I think it takes on a greater urgency today because we live in an increasingly lawless society, by which I don't mean that we live in a nation of scoff laws, um, law-breaking has always been with us, it always will be. The lawlessness, I mean, is deeper and more troubling. And let me pause here uh, to, igno- to acknowledge the obvious, uh, given the scandals afflicting the church today. And the obvious is the incongruity of a Catholic priest praising the rule of law as the church suffers precisely because, well... Catholic priests have violated the rule of law. Uh, And and now this this one is talking about lawlessness. Uh, Given that we clerics are, uh, have damaged the credibility of the church in in this day, we seem most ill-suited for this kind of talk, don't we? 
But that itself is part of the scandal. The scandal is primarily about criminal and evil things inflicted upon the innocent, and, and then, by extension, some cover-ups. But there's also the damage done to the church's own ability to witness to what is true. There, there's a need for the church to speak more clearly than ever. And in just this moment, her credibility has been damaged by the very ones who should have strengthened it. Uh, uh, Soon to be St. Paul VI famously observed that the modern world listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. Unfortunately, the, the wickedness of some has damaged the church's ability to teach, uh, to cry out against this lawlessness uh, increasing in our culture because her witness uh, has been compromised as well. But we still have to speak what is true. So what do I mean by lawlessness? St. Paul, the Pharisee of Tarsus, uh, he speaks of the Antichrist as the man of lawlessness, by, by which he means something probably more than just the devil breaks rules. We know that already. Uh, the man of lawlessness is not a rule, just a rule breaker, but one who has no norm or principle governing his life. A few verses later, St. Paul mentions the mysterium iniquitatis, the mystery of lawlessness. That he calls this a mystery indicates that he means more than just jaywalking or, you know, fibbing on your taxes. The lawlessness indicated here is the rejection, not the rejection, not just of the rule of law, but of any governing principle or truth for human affairs and conduct. It's what then Cardinal Ratzinger termed the dictatorship of, relevant, uh, of relativism, the rejection of any truth about the human person. And this is what besets our culture now, this kind of lawlessness. Not that we disagree on this or that law or even on this or that point of moral truth, it's rather that, increasingly, we disagree whether there is any such thing as truth about the person at all, a truth that should govern our laws and structure our community. It's a lawlessness, in our view, about the human person. And here is the greatest lawlessness, this rejection of God's creation and, therefore, his design for us. So we get to make ourselves without a law get to determine our own existence, our own meaning, instead of receiving it from our Creator, who is also the lawgiver. And when this sort of trickles down in legislation, it means laws detached from any reference to or concern about the natural law or the human person, uh, legislation that serves only my purposes or, more likely, my group's purposes, uh, in the legal world, this produces the mindset that sees the law as arbitrary, as meaning only what I want it to mean. And in jurisprudence, it means the infamous mystery of life passage, uh, the passage that ate the rule of law. In such a situation, the strongest one wins, and the poor are at the greatest disadvantage. With no ability to appeal to the truth of the human person, Society becomes survival of the fittest. 
the truth about the human person, the law of, that, that's written in our hearts that is, is meant to, to govern how we think, speak, and act, that's meant to shape how we live in community. Uh, this is uh, the greatest defense of the poor and of the marginalized. That's why Martin Luther King invoked it. He saw it as something distinct and, and detached just from the raw power of man and an appeal that everyone could make. All of which, I hope, indicates uh, the importance of gatherings such as this uh, so that you can confirm one another in the importance of faith's role in your work. Contrary, perhaps, to the conventional wisdom There is a great need for men and women of faith in the legal profession and in the public square. You who know the lawgiver, you know both the importance of laws and their limits. And from him, you know the truth of the human person and the truths that structure our relationships and therefore structure society. And to him, you can refer all your work for his blessing and to his glory. And may you always do so. Thank you. God bless. Thank you all, uh, and uh, I'm, I think that Father Scalia will be around if you'd like to say hello, introduce yourself to him, uh, and it's been a, a wonderful uh, red mass and, and meal and speak and talk this evening, so uh, thanks very much, and uh, travel safely home.